welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. Welcome to the latest episode of Inspiring Futures. Uh, my guest today, David Schwartz of Hush Studios, or do you call yourselves Hush? How, how do you... Just Hush. Okay. Um, so, uh, Dave, thanks for thanks for joining me. Um, maybe you could uh, we could start off by explaining a little bit about your background, how you got to where you got to today, and your sort of pathway uh, to the present. Thanks. I'll try to keep it. Um simple and clear i you know i was uh uh i always was into design and architecture and and creative in some way um, but never really got to manifest it uh as a profession until i took a little bit of like a circuitous path and got distracted by things that things i should have been doing or someone said i should have been doing or more pursuits that were more business oriented but in the end i i um through a liberal arts education and a and a grad school degree and some work in the dot-com boom and digital design and things like that. I put it together enough to um, to have enough clarity around what I want to do and what I think I could offer. And um, in uh, 2006, I met my business partner. Uh, we were working in um, a design and animation company called Brand New School in New York. And at that time, it was much more production. So we were doing a lot of commercials and directing commercials and doing graphic design and VFX and animation and things like that. But really, really um, strong, firm culturally and quality wise. And we got a lot of uh, rope uh, and leeway to kind of like push some of the boundaries and, and sort of run some of our own projects enough so that um, we could decide to kind of go out on our own um, with some of the confidence we built during that time working together at brand new school, but also with all the naivety of not actually knowing how to run a business and never seeing totally behind the curtain of what was going on at, at that time, maybe like an 80 or 100 person, you know, multi studio operation. So um, when we started Hush, we, we kind of just wanted to hang our own shingle. Um, both of uh, both of us were kind of entrepreneurially minded, and we liked the business aspect of the design and creative as much as the creative. My partner is more technical, process driven, you know, data, visual effects, uh, tech, and I was sort of more of the strategy and design half. Um, but we were both aligned, you know, on kind of what it meant to run a business, what kind of business we wanted to create culturally. You know, we we had that kind of central. Uh, shared desire um, to build our own space, and uh, and and in addition, we we really set up Hush to not be um, a commercial production company or even just a, a sort of let's call it brand and uh, uh, a marketing advertising kind of company. We were really doing it to explore the reaches of the third dimension, and this was early in you know what's now called experience design. Um, I mean, this has been around since the, the age of architecture, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, but it wasn't really called what it's called. So we really looked at, hey, how can we, we've been working in this 16 by nine rectangle, or at the time, funnily, it was four by three. And, um, you know, we had been creating flat kind of creative statements, right? So they were, they were temporal, but they were flat. And they were digital, but they were flat. And so we we really wanted to say, okay, how do we tell stories using digital technology, um, and then extrude that out into the third dimension of the real world and see what it's like when people come into and around things and participate in things like in that dimension. Was there was there was there a moment or something you saw or something you were working on that you kind of said this? Well, this is what that took you to that the potentiality of that space. Um, I don't think that happened as part of our partnership. I think that was something that was uh, a characteristic of both of us from like, you know, deep inside our history and as being kids, you know, I, I was always into architecture just as a thing to study and a, and an interest, you know, to explore. 
And Eric was always working in three dimensions, 3D in animation and space. So it was like this kind of virtualized understanding of space. And, um, and that was just kind of there burning, you know, it, it, we couldn't enact it. We couldn't act on it in our previous roles. And so it was more like the chip we could put on the table and say, hey, this is something that's been a passion and an interest of ours. And now it happens to be something that's kind of heating up in the marketplace in a way. And we should be the folks to help evolve that. So it was there. You start the business. What year was it? You started? 2006, basically 2007, let's okay. call it. You know, I guess starting a business is funny because it's, um, it's a, it feels like it starts, but it's a crossfade. You know, you have to untangle yourself from your work history and relationships financially and, you know, and just like emotionally and then feel like you've committed. Um, I always, like, I always talk to people about who've started businesses and there's that moonlight conversation. Like, when should I moonlight? And when should I actually start it? And, you know, it really depends on so many people's unique circumstances and needs, financial and emotional and, and million other things. But um, it Did does feel really hard until you commit, you know, you have Did no you other income source client? except for the business. <laughs> Did you start with a client? Did you have a client or did you have, did you start with nothing? I know that's, I know that's the rule. Start with a client, but we had nothing. Yeah. So that you went, you went the hard way, super hard way, but you had the, you had the passion, you had the enthusiasm uh, to do something. You knew roughly what you wanted to do. So yeah. how did, how did you, how did you win your first piece of business? Get well, that's funny because it connects to what you said, which is start with a client is the easier way. We took the leap without a client, but of course, a client who we know entrusted us was the first one to, to, uh, yeah. you know, give us the parachute on the way down. And, um, ironically that same client is a client who we, um, just completed an amazing project for Uber for. So it's many, many years of relationship. I think it's funny because, you know, no one should trust you based on nothing. And so you may have a portfolio, you may have some business experience, but, you know, your first client, you're asked there, you know, you're really truly asking them to trust you because you have no, you have experience, but no experience in this mode, you know, running your own business. And, and so it's almost like a de facto, you know, you have to, you have to lean into someone who understands your, your integrity um, in this new sort of setup. Yeah. So what, what was, what was that? What was that client? Can you say? At the time, it was um, Hyundai, um, a, a friend, client, a friend, and then client had been working for another sort of production event company that looped us into an auto show project. Mm -hmm. And so immediately we were faced with not a scale that was scary. You know, it was scary in all the other ways. Like we had to figure out how to run the business, how to communicate, how to, how to budget, how to scope you know, um, and um, we, but we knew how to do the scale, right? And so it was actually a perfect opportunity for us to like, you know, tear that muscle, do good work, and then figure out how to refine it. So it was, it was a wonderful first touch. Since 2007, would you say you've gone through evolution, like, like the evolution of man, evolution of hush? <laughs> Is it, is it gone through sort of the, the, the coming out of the sea and growing legs and learning to walk and stuff yeah. like that? Yeah, we might be back in the sea. I don't even know. <laughs> well, certainly, we had, we had some, uh, we had an asteroid attack or something. We wiped out a few dinosaurs, right? <laughs> yeah, we definitely feel like we've um, been hit by some meteors over time. In the last, you know, 18 months yeah. has significantly been a meteor. But yeah, I mean, but like before that, I think we evolved probably three times, you know, and I, I guess I would track evolution to the work product as one sense of evolution, the industry you're fundamentally in as another sort of evolution, and then maybe team and leadership as, as the third kind of evolution, right? And they all happen in parallel for sure. But, you know, who's on our team now is not who we started with. That's not uncommon, but, you know, the caliber of people we have now 
and the sort of gravitas they bring from a much wider view into the industry and creative landscape is like, you know, it's amazing to even think that we have thousands of hours of their knowledge being contributed to the business versus before we were kind of like guessing and, and the, and we had talented folks in the first, you know, iteration too. It was just more like we were all figuring it out together. Whereas now I think we're working with maybe a little bit more history and data and best practice in our, in our toolkit. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of evolution, but I kind of feel like that's par for the course, right? Like what, what business stays stagnant in terms of what it does and offer. Mm. There are very few that, that have the privilege of just being able to lean in on this like one yeah, amazing yeah. thing. One of the things I, I, I think is interesting when I talk to people about technology and, uh, and I just haven't seen it work in agency side, a lot of sort of like shiny object syndrome. Mm. You see it from clients and, and is that something that, because I, I think people either get excited by it or they get worried about it. Like they either it's like, wow, this thing exists. We can now realize this vision that we've always thought was interesting or you have this very pragmatic and realistic view, which is uh, I want to see, I want to see some people use it before we do. Mm. thing how do you, how do you approach those is those those kind of like opportunities where um you, you know there are there are exciting areas of technology in terms of it being able to be applicable but at the same time um it's not quite ready for prime time are you are you are you the guys that roll up your sleeves and say yeah we want to be the first to to, to get to get into this and, and see what happens or are you people who are kind of like a little bit more well let's wait and see we don't want to we don't want to get egg on our face here <laughs> that is it's it's a really good and really complicated question in relationship to our industry one but also our brand hush and i can tell you we have six design principles and one of them is creatively technologically innovative but with restraint and that is what that means is we have two forces on our business. The clients that come to us come to us because we have a creative technology prowess. Frankly, they really wouldn't come to us in general unless they were interested in exploring the technical possibilities of experience design. If they didn't want that, they'd, they'd be right to hire a wonderful interior architect or you know a, a cool fabricating build, you know whatever, all the things that you've seen. So we have this like, that's a draw. But at the same time, we work with these enterprise scale organizations who can't actually take the risk of working at the bleeding edge of technology for a million reasons. Imagine what risk could mean for Uber or Facebook or Google or, you know, in terms of data or, or, or trying and failing, right? It's too big a stage. So we, we maybe, told, maybe we, we should back, maybe we should backtrack a little and explain a little bit of like when you talk about these companies, what it is you're making and building. I know you and I know, but the listeners might not. So absolutely, that's some um, cool. So so you know the best way to describe something is with some examples. So experience design as a practice is like a terrible terrible word. We all know it. We all hate it. If you know what it is, you kind of know it, but it's kind of a little bit to each his or her own, um, even the word experience design or experience designer on LinkedIn for jobs on the West Coast or in the Bay Area relate to the mobile application. Whereas on the East Coast in a more marketing and brand kind of world, it's maybe more what we're talking about, which is how like the full spectrum of human senses are crafted and designed to kind of create a response or catalyze action or something. So what we do specifically is three-dimensional space. It's like the integration of architecture and digital interface and content. And um, we do that mostly now at the scale of like lobbies and architecture and the spaces you walk into that are kind of grand and are intended to have like a big inspirational power to them. So if you believe in the idea that the spaces that big organizations create for their people or their partners or their customers 
are sort of the, 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 the primary spaces they message their brand and mission through. Um, if you're Nike, you could talk about your campus. You could also talk about your flagship retail store, for example. If you're Facebook, you could talk about um, the places you bring your partners, like exhibitions and partner innovation centers around the world. Or you could talk about your own campus where thousands of people show up every day and recruits come you know, to see if they want to work with you. Those are the spaces we work in. Those are the spaces we try to inject this like higher level of digital and physically architectural experience to make people walk in and do things and feel things that they can't simply get anywhere else. So that's kind of that's kind of what we do. Those are the contexts for where we where we work. In, in, these, in these cases, you're sort of what I got from what you just said, literally your last sentence was almost like the challenge, the strategic challenge is you think when you think of Google, you think of this. When you think of Uber, you think of this. But let's show you something else. Is that yeah. kind of, let's show you something you haven't seen before or may not even thought about the scale, the scope, the size of the problems we solve. And yeah. you, that's what you're, that's what kind of the brief is, right? Show, show this. Yeah. And you're right on with the addition that I could talk about size and scale of an Uber or a Facebook or a Google in the same rectangle we're communicating in right now. But if I can do that at the scale of architecture where your humanness at five foot 10 or whatever is, is really in comparison to the space around you, that's kind of where we, where we sing because now all of a sudden we're not talking about scale. You're feeling scale through the, your surroundings and that's kind of more powerful, right? So, you know, I always imagine a great example is like, you know, the competition for talent is, is enormous right now. And so, you know, you imagine you're a 21 year old kid who just graduated, you know, top of your class at MIT and you have your pick of the litter of where you want to go. And, um, and you're really trying to figure out not where can I, you know, be the best, you know, data scientist I can be only you're going, where can I be the best data scientist I, will, I can be for the company or the organization that most reflects who I want to be and what I want to see in the world. And so that added piece is where it gets really interesting because we're often asked to help, you know, create that sensibility for these companies. So people go, oh, wow. Like, I had no idea that that was the bigger purpose, the bigger mission. I had no idea that that was going on, right? I had no idea that these other people are also thinking about those kinds of things. And so if we can encapsulate that, I think we did our job. I remember years and years ago being in the Bay Area and going to a maker fair, uh, like one of the first maker fairs and seeing, um, I can't remember, this, this, this guy, I think, it, I can't remember who it was, this he was, he was a graduate. He went on to be like the creative director over at Google, but he created a program in processing which showed all the flights. Aaron Koblen. Yeah, you know yeah. exactly who I mean. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. A, that was this thing. And it kind of, kind of was like the first thing I saw, which is like, oh, wow, this is how you, how you do something really cool with data. How you, yeah. how you put those kind of spreadsheets and you kind of humanize it in a way that you go, wow, that is... I couldn't understand that on a spreadsheet. It wouldn't be as powerful. It, it suddenly, I see it visualized. Yes. And, and it crystallizes this thought. Um, it's like everyone, you know, you probably before you saw that piece, you knew that there's thousands and thousands of airplanes in the sky yeah, at any given moment. And that, you know, as the, as it becomes, you know, 7am at every airport around the world, like, you know, flights start taking off. You, you probably conceptually knew that. But having him put it into that visualization, which, you know, in retrospect is, is a pretty simple visualization compared to what we know now, but just being able to translate, you know, a giant, you know, CSV file of data into yeah. something that we can kind of emotionally get it. You almost like you see those bursts of planes taking off in a major city and you kind of almost feel like you know what that's like to be at an airport at that moment. You can almost like see the people and the things that are happening. So, you know, take Aaron's work, which he did, you know, a hundred times one up to his own self, you know, for the decade that followed. Um, 
but then you add this third dimension to that. And I think you start getting into the work we like to pursue, which is like taking that sensibility and then wrapping you with it, you know, through the scale of architecture and maybe more physicalized technology. I was wondering whether, whether, you know, how, how, um, how much flexibility, because I'll give you, I'll give you this crazy story, right? Mm -hmm. So um, years and years ago, I went to Israel on a vacation. I was supposed to sit on a beach and do nothing, but I ended up um, meeting some people very, very quickly and going in a sort of a, a rental car and driving around Israel. And we ended up getting into Jordan. But when we got to the, when we got to the, because the border was open then, and then we got, we got to the um, visa place and uh, it was a chalkboard and uh, the prices would change daily. It was like a market. And the, the people we were traveling with were Canadians and their price was different to Brits. <laughs> and we asked, why is the Canadian price like twice as much? Well, they go, the Canadian minister said something nasty about the Arabs last night. So we jacked the price up of the visa. <laughs> So I thought that was kind of like that was kind of like flexibility built into data visualization on a shortboard. Oh my god! Uh, but I was thinking in the case of you know how much modularity is there because you know it could be like this idea of okay we today we want to show our environmental impact tomorrow we want to show um, just the scale you know is that has that become as technology has evolved has that become a possibility and an art. Do you know what I mean? So it, there's a sort of a more of a modularity. There's more possibilities instead of being singular dimension. Yeah, it may have the benefit of scale, but mm. it now becomes multi, a multiplicity of options that you can kind of program and you can uh, program according to whatever you feel you want to be showing. Because yep. say, I, I mean, I'll give you another crazy, another crazy example. And you might have heard this story. It's one of my favorite stories about experience design ever. <laughs> I hope I've heard pretty it. Pretty topical. Or if I have it, I'm going to steal it and then I'll yeah, use it. Please steal it if you haven't heard of it. Um, but I heard this on Good Authority and it's pretty timely because we just experienced Wimbledon. But years and years ago, um, a tennis player called Maria Sharapova yeah. won her first Wimbledon title. And she became literally catapulted to be a female superstar overnight. The first call her father makes to um, the Monday morning after she's won on the Saturday is uh, to Nike to say, uh, Maria and the family are flying out to renegotiate our contract. <laughs> oh my God. Um, for which apparently panic uh, hit the Beaverton campus because Maria was apparently the only kind of big name they had in the right. female roster. Right. So uh, there was a huddle in the big meeting and uh, the sort of tick down to like a week from Monday, um, the Sharapova family were coming to Beaverton uh, and they would be dining with Phil Knight and they would be renegotiating the contract. But the show had to be put on. So um, a bunch of people decided they take one of the buildings, uh, the lobbies of one of the buildings and they uh, architect it. And um, they decided that in the morning it would be Maria's apartment and um, in the evening, it would be uh, after lunch when she came back, it would be kind of like a gym. So there was a kind of, they made that uh, well doubly hard. But the most interesting, interesting thing about the whole story is not the fact that they did it, which is amazing in itself. But apparently, um, when the Sharapova family arrived in their so-called apartment, there was a coffee table. And... Um, they sat down and they were given coffees or whatever. And her mother picked up the book and she opened the cover and she practically burst into tears because she said, how do you know about this book? This is a, this is a very inside, only real Russians know about this book and how it was banned. And you have some, you must know something. You know something to have this book on the table. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's pretty incredible, right? Yeah, it's that level of detail. Yeah, in thinking. Yeah, that's a crazy story, but also very. I feel like very, very Nike. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, so I mean, just exactly. You know, it's the it's it's the details. It's the it's the the things that make these things special, right? Because you're ultimately you're you're sort of you're trying to create a wow, like anything. Yeah, but you've oh. got. 
a wow that endures actually yeah yeah that's it that's it that's a really interesting point right a long wow which is why i was thinking about the modularity of it yeah um and the flexibility of it well you know you're um so you're you're you know these are this is very close to home in terms of like client conversations right because because you invest a lot in these kinds of things and in the work we do they're they're permanent i mean i'm quoting air quoting only because nothing's permanent you know but but the intention is permanent right the intention is not to do it and then do it again later and then take it down and pop it up it's it's about enduring an enduring impression um and physically it's like tied in right it's like it's like integrated so um so there's a double-edged sword right you know when when you start having conversations about well we wanted to do this on day one but then we wanted to do a million other things maybe in day two three four five it's a smart conversation that's called strategy it's all about planning planning for change which is life but what happens is there's this uncanny valley which is a gravitational pull, which if you need something to do something great on day one and then do anything potentially in the future on day two, three, four, you basically start designing for everything. And it's this kind of like a camel, right? A horse designed by committee. And what it does in the digital experience world is you get Times Square. Times Square is the most evergreen evolution friendly space in the world. It's a bunch of rectangles. You can put anything on them in the world. And that's how media buying happens. And it's like, well, it's a Hyundai ad today. It's a Nike experience later. And it's a data arts visualization tomorrow. And, you know, and then we'll do it again. Right. And so you got to fight the, you, it's not fighting. It's, it's about balancing and being smart about, well, you lose your whole niche and custom and branded and ownership over something. If you devolve to the most commodity source of digital surfaces and things like screens, at the same time, if you design something completely custom and bespoke, you start to handcuff yourself about the future potential, and then you start to get put into a corner. So I actually think that's the world we live in of design is like, how do you make something that's special and unique? And, you know, if it's Nike, it feels only Nike would think and do this, but Nike gets a, two, a day two, day three, day four, day five plan for how that thing can evolve. Now that's on one side. The other side that's cool is in our advantage which is especially for the companies we work with, although Nike is included because we've done a bunch of data stuff with them. Data is, I was just to talk about and write about data as brand. It's kind of a cliche at this point, but this was several years ago. Like modern organizations beyond big tech exist and evolve almost solely through their, their relationship to their data. If you're, even if you're a B2C company like Nike, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at, Usership and app behavior, and you're designing products and needs based on those behaviors, and then you're testing it and doing it again and again and again. Um, and obviously, with some of the the bigger tech companies clients we have, you know, how how does Uber exist in the world at its scale without ruthlessly understanding the behavior of people who want to go from place to place or get something from place to place? And if you don't understand that, you can't operate at scale. You can't find the business efficiencies, and then the business model doesn't work. So the data that that company sees now is, is, is going to be, by definition, way different than in a year or five years from now. So what's cool is, though, data is, in theory, in a perfect world, evergreen. If you can understand the sources of it and you understand how to use it and be safe and private and, and confidential with it, but use it as an asset, it's like a stream. And the stream may change, it might rush faster or slower, it might split, it might have different mineral content over time, it might change with the seasons, but it's there. And if we can then harness that stream, and it can become different things at different time in relation to that, to, to that source, I think we have a pretty cool design project. So that was a long way of saying it's a, it's an, it's a trap, but it's also an asset. You know? Yeah, I was, I, was, like, I was kind of wondering, like the critical strategic questions, I, I thought, one critical strategic question is who is this for hmm. and having some real clarity because i think the easiest thing would be to say well it's for anyone who comes through the lobby it's for of course it's for our potential customers it's for you know you'd write a long list don't you and then you go well no who is it really for right 
and sometimes forcing them and forcing them to make a focused decision on that would be i would imagine be very hard it's it's hard and it's also um sometimes the truth is harder to find you have um statements about who it's for but then you find out maybe that it's for one person ceo right yeah like we we've definitely and i won't name names but we've definitely yeah. been involved in projects where you think it's for employees and you know and and recruits and um making it a more blah 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 space and creating more retention and feel good but then you just realize it's actually the dream of a single person who wants to feel like he or she has put a stamp on something that has remember, enduring uh, quality. I remember a Silicon Valley episode <laughs> where the, the kind of the CEO with all the guru and you know that yeah. kind of guy. I think he's looking out of the window and someone's building a bigger tower than him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of thinking yeah. of the same kind of thing, right? Yeah. Uh, there's, there's sort of someone goes into someone else's office and their lobby is is suddenly a lot better, and you start getting the call. Right. Yeah. yeah, there's definitely, especially in the Bay Area, there's a one-upsmanship happening. Yeah. You know, um, it's not is 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 it's not. I don't think as gross as the satirical <laughs> version is for um, for Silicon Valley, the show. But uh, there's a um, you know that whole open source kind of like ethos translates to like you know show and tell everything all the time. So like our clients tell us that their competitors come to see their spaces and it's, it's kind of like, I'll see yours, you'll see mine. And they do that. And then it creates a little bit of like, well, they have this, what's our version of that? It's not that they just want it. It's not like they, they like someone's car and they just want to buy that car. It's like they see the potential of it and its impact and they feel like, wow, like we're in the most competitive landscape in the world. And we need to, we need to sure. yeah, and we need to kind of, we need to be there at the same level. And look, that doesn't translate in what Hush does all the time. Yeah. Sometimes that translates into, you know, a, a, a really strong wellness program, you know, where mm-hmm. people, you know, under have more control over their physical and mental health and options and you know, and, and that stuff, that's also powerful, but that, yeah. that kind of competition can work in our favor sometimes for sure. Yeah. And then the other thing was, how do you get your heads around the data? Like that seems like a big, you know, you assume there's streams of data, but you hear that it's not easy to get hold of and it's not easy to, 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 to bring it somewhere. It's mm. a, it, it sort of ex- often exists in disparate places and that would seem to be like a big another big challenge yeah and it's and every day uh, with every new data breach it's a it's a challenge to have our clients feel secure in in their relationship to their own data and then their relationship to their own data in the service of something that's not purely transactional right or 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 optimizes their web experience or their shopping cart you know and then another thing would be clearly you guys have that the security issue as well be because you guys have to be prototyping right they sign the docket and there's probably i don't know what a window of time between you know you you got various stages that you put in your scope and concepting and all that other stuff and then you get to the build, but before you get to the build, you got to get to prototyping and all those other things. They got to see what they're going to, what's going to be built, right? Yeah, it, it there's definitely not like a. How do you do? Board. How do you do all that stuff? Because it's you know you come from a production company where you know people presented storyboards and treatments and <laughs> it was kind of a vernacular, right? There was yeah. there's a very easy to understand vernacular around scripts and storyboards. Yeah. When you're talking yeah. about what you're doing. It, it it's a little there's a lot of magic there and uh, you know you can do an architectural rendering which is one thing but then the, the, you're doing more than that so how do you, how do you how do you sell this stuff and how do you present it it's a great it's an awesome question and sort of like the life's work as we constantly yeah. figure it yeah. out because it's not about years not, 15 years of doing this yeah it's not about not knowing what's possible to present but you're always 
you know, you're always running against a function of time and, and, and money and bodies and capabilities. And, and, um, and I'm always into just like doing not what everyone else does, but what best articulates the concept clearly. So, you know, in architecture, everyone's chasing the photorealistic render. Like it's as if clients can't understand anything unless it's a hundred percent real. Like there's not even a, a fake person wearing the wrong color jeans. You know, it's like, it has to be completely real or else not even, you can't even consider it. I, I think that's, it's a folly and a joke and it's commoditized the industry, but it has a purpose in animation or video production. It's storyboards. And, you know, I was coming up at a time when, you know, it was, you know, for a 30 second spot, it would, it was, you know, at, at some point it was, you know, uh, eight frames or 10 frames. You could get the gist and you knew the style and you knew the beat by beat and the three acts, you know, by the time I was done, we were pitching doing 30 sets of boards, each, you know, 15 to 20 frames a board, which means there's really only a second or two missing out of the whole spot. You know, it's really everything you'd see. There's nothing missing. And so, everything gets pushed to the threshold, you know, in, in digital, right. You, you build a, you know, you do an interface test and you build like a prototype You can click through it, click through a wireframe, click through an interface. Right. Um, so the cool part is we have all these processes and, and, and um, sort of like industry standard things to pick from. It's like an awesome toolkit at our disposal. Um, and, and we basically pick the, we open the toolbox and we pick the tools that we think are going to be the most effective, right? So if what we're creating really hinges on the way somebody might interact with something or participate in something, I don't know, like dumb idea, right? Like uh, it's a big wheel and you got to turn the giant wheel. Well, we could render that wheel, but that doesn't really communicate what it feels like to participate and touch collectively a giant, you know, 20 foot radius wheel, right? So we would pick then lower fidelity renderings, but, but in motion, motion tests or demos, right? Anyway, so, you know, it's, it's really about selecting those right tools. The cool part is though, we're getting pretty, pretty high, high tech in previs. That's been a huge push in the last year and a half, two years in the ability to do it all in real time, all in VR or AR, so that we can actually walk our clients through the most sort of, you know, multi-sensory kind of proxy to what we're doing as possible. That doesn't mean we stick on VR goggles and, and we see this space photorealistically necessarily, but it might mean that we stick on VR goggles see the scale of the experience sensorially and we're able to like move through different kinds of content that affects the lighting in the room and play with sound and the sound space kind of tension and you know we're getting pretty good at being able to do that in a, in a real-time way which is the holy grail then you have architects animators and creative technologists working all together contributing to the same central thing and you throw away the deck and basically you just say, hey, let's go look at this in real time and see. And they go, oh, cool. It would be so cool if that moved a little faster or actually that got, that got closer to our brand colors. Or could you actually put like, turn that into words? And you're like, yep. And you do it and they see it. And they're, you know, that speed of just like call and response gets super exciting. Kind of feels like being in like an edit, you know? where you're like, you see how like the film story feels and changes based on moving things around. If you could get that kind of speed of call and response, it gets real interesting. It seems really so. interesting. Like um, it's, it's not a create, it, it's not the creation of the idea because you have to have, you're doing something else to get to that concept and then you can render that concept. Hmm. But there's certainly as in terms of you seeing that world or your team seeing that world that must be very that must be an interesting different experience like from the way you've created in the past it, it must you know you got a, you've got a level of um 
it takes you to a level of realism that is pretty damn close to the thing itself. And that obviously has quite significant implications on how on production and logistics and things like that, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're spot on. It's like, we, we talk about this whole previs process and investment as, as a two-part system. One is getting us to understand what we're creating better intimately as insider makers. And then a secondary effect is how we communicate that outwards. It's like, you know, the simple parallel is like, oh, we're, you know, Google Slides revolutionized how people like show and tell ideas, right? In the conceptual development. And you look at these sloppy multi-team slides decks where everything's coming together and people are copying and pasting and arranging and adding notes and drawing on it. And it feels like this amazing process where you're like seeing it all happen. That would be a nightmare to show to the client, but it's amazing and liberating for us after the days of, you know, InDesign with five gig attachments that you're trying to find and source and make pixel perfect. It's a whole different internal process, but it also translates to helping to just simplify what we're trying to get at to our clients on the outside. So that two-part system is amazing. But I mean, we used to just, we usually just do the things from each discipline. So our architectural team would do the space in the three dimension and render it, throw it into the, into the pot, our motion designers would move and show how interfaces could work and light might move and da da da. throw it into the pot. You know, creative technologists might write a cool piece of software that shows how this piece of data could turn into that and we could mess with these parameters, throw it into the pot. And then we would have to, to, to make sense of it and sift it. And the architects would see what the technologists were doing. The technologists would see what the you know graphic designer animator was doing and so on and so forth. And we would make sense of it but it was a pretty ugly process. You're just, you're just, you're just kind of weaving, stitching all this stuff together. It's not unlike that still. It's just that it's kind of congealing now into the central thing that helps us get there faster and then make better decisions faster. So we just, it's just better design. You know, you just know more about what's going to happen sooner. So you start to make better decisions. You, does it, do, do clients come to you and, and do you win business based on your experience or do you have to present? Is it, a, is, it, is it a pitch for the lobby and the best idea wins or is it a capabilities selection process where, yeah, you clearly have done this before. We don't care. I mean, it's up to you. You know, we'll, you'll present a bunch of ideas to us, but we're going to hire you to get yeah. to this. How does yeah. it work? In, in nearly 15 years, it's been an evolution to the former. So we're much more higher based on confidence, capabilities, yeah. point of view, strategy. How do we work together? Right. What's your vision in the world? Yeah. You know, like at some so point. How, so how does that work? So so that's what I was hoping to hear. So how, how, so Uber calls you. Well, let's say Uber doesn't call you. Let's say. Joe Schmo chip company calls you down in the Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. uh, you meet with them, whatever happens, they want you to work on stuff. How do you guys work? I mean, how do you guys, how does it, how does the credit process work with you guys? I mean, does someone write a brief? Does, do you, do you sit in a big room and throw stuff on a wall? Uh, are you looking for a big idea to start with? Or is it called, is it okay to have, a bunch of interesting little ideas. How, how do you how do you how do you work? I mean, obviously, it's different depending on who you're talking to. You assume that the company bringing the assignment, people bring a ton of like thoughts. If it's a chip company, if it's Uber, if it's a hotel company, it's something completely different. But uh, how how do you guys generally tend to create? Got it. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna grossly generalize. Incredibly complex thing, <laughs> and uh, and I'm and I'm very. I want to be very clear. It's absolutely not black and white and binary because yeah. the world's a complicated place and every client's different and everyone has a different point of view, different experience doing this kind of work from none to a ton. And so you kind of have to meet everyone where they are. Yeah. But um, broadly speaking, we were quite collaborative. 
So we really don't engage with companies who expect us to just like go away and pull a rabbit out of the hat and be like, check out yeah. this awesome idea. It's so cool. Check it out. It's awesome. Pick one. That's not our process. We're sort of humble in the sense that like, well, we're experts at what we do, but you're experts at uh, microchips or you know, whatever you do. Like, how are we supposed to be smart without being, without you helping us be smart? And so there's a sort of like, I mean, it's, 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 it's very much, it's strategic and it's strategy with a capital S, right? It's, 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 we have to learn what we don't know. Yep. We have to be um, objective observers of what we don't know. So we might call a client on bullshit or say that doesn't make sense or why are you doing that? But we need to hear what is actually happening and what they actually believe, good and bad. Um, and then we're pretty fast once we take that knowledge we're pretty fast to come up with the idea. You know, I couldn't tell you, we've come up, we've come, it's night and day from, you know, the last job I had with, with Eric at brand new school, when it was all an era of let's overwhelm them with ideas, because if we give them 30, they'll pick one and we win yeah, no matter yeah. what. Yeah. Now it's, we give them one. Yeah. Yeah. And it's we something show them why it's the one idea that makes what was interesting what was interesting when you were talking about the previous was this kind of idea that uh you've gone from silos to a collaborative environment so mm. so you know, there were people went away and did their expert stuff and then you came together and you put it all in place but now um how does that because you still have specialist experts you still got mm. architects designers coders yeah. technologists yeah do they all get a seat at the table at the very beginning or, or do they, how do you how do you tend to uh um great question um so from a process standpoint we we fight tooth and nail against waterfall which is you yeah. know this this oh strategy That's writes a time. brief strategy yeah. briefs creative creative takes yeah. brief makes cool things cool things are presented to technology technology vets then enacts then we, yep. you know now in reality in real life no do we have a giant creative technology team spending hours like on the first day of the project no but are there seats at the table for every major department absolutely because frankly the work we do you can't do it with blinders on so the different disciplines grow over time, over the phase, but they're always being checked by their counterparts. So there's this handshake along the way. So it's as least waterfall as possible. Um, there are some things about the work we do that are just, you know, there are milestones and there are things that have to, one group stops, another group starts. That's the way it is. But mentally or ideologically, I would say, it's like everybody's in the ring. What we, what, we have changed a little bit though is that we've worked much harder to set the table with strategy in the beginning what i used to think was like everyone wants a seat at the table everyone wants to hear every word everyone wants to be part of every conversation that's me i'm weird not everyone else and actually very few people actually want that information overload um, they don't want things decided for them, but they want to understand everything in a way that is a little bit baked so that they can lean in and use their superpower to then take the thing and, and make it better and amazing and awesome. And so that was a hard learning for us, actually. You remember back when we began, you said, what, what act are we in or what evolution stage? We got to a place where we, it was so flat and so open source where I think we were driving people crazy. Because they, they were, were driving, meetings, there were meetings all day. Meetings all day, but it was also decision paralysis. Like, yeah. like, why am I at this meeting? I don't even know why. I'm so scared. I've never done this before. I can't even think about it, you know? And we were just giving everyone information and opportunity, which is cool. And like, from a, as a business owner, I love that idea of it. But I also came to realize that like, there's decision paralysis and, there, and people want to know that they can wake up tomorrow and be getting better at the thing that they're working on today. 
and that everything is not always changing. And so we've worked harder to kind of create the frameworks for thinking about projects, thinking about problems. They see the same kinds of frameworks. And when everyone then gathers around the table at time X, you know, the framework we've created is familiar to them and they're being posed the same questions. It just might be different inputs. So that's, I'd say that's how we start working, you know, very collaborative, try to get to the core truth. And then, and then we go away and we just keep iterating until we, until it's iterated to death. You know, I'm like a big fan of, of less is more, but I'm a big fan of more is more internally, meaning I want to see options, 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 rigor, 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 show me a hundred. And then we'll find that one or three or five that makes sense. And the client will never see any of that, but we will. And then we'll figure out what we think we really believe in and put that forward. You know, how important is uh, outside inspiration to the process? Oh, huge. Yeah. Our inspiration channel is, is, is my favorite. Yeah, Slack, Slack, Slack Slack channel. Channel. Oh, it's my favorite. Cause you know, you see into people's minds, like you. you... Okay. So we're talking, David, we were talking about inspiration. You were talking about your Slack channel and this, I was kind of saying how important is inspiration and how do you use it? Where does it come from? I mean, it's, it's, you know, I, I'm kind of of the mindset that like everything's a reference. It's a little bit postmodern, but you know, it's like a little bit of, it's like, it's more like cooking and less like inventing, you know? Um, I don't know if that's the difference between art and design, but maybe, um, you know, I just, it, it, I, I love the idea of alchemy and you're tying together disparate things. And the more things you tie together that are disparate and far away from actually what you're doing, the more interesting things get. So the only thing that is a, a folly on our inspirational channel is when we see inspiration that's directly in our world, like a direct reference, like a competitor's work. I mean, it's important to see as benchmarks and understanding what's out there, but that's less about inspiration. And it's more about just knowledge, right? And, and knowing yeah. what's out in the ecosystem. So wait, wait, when you when you say true inspiration, it's out of category. What do you tend, what do, you know, you look in the worlds of art, architecture. Yeah, I think our, I think our team, and this must be just a, a DNA thing, right? Like where somehow we're, we're testing for it. Um, and we're, we're arriving at people mm -hmm. who, you know, uh, I would say art, music, dance, architecture, um, that's kind of where it pulls from. And it's, it's less about, oh, let's do a dance thing, because that's probably not the case, but more like, wow, that set for that performance was amazing. And look at the way people inhabited that space and moved in it. What if that was the kind of movement we wanted to harness and instead we would do this, that, like that's the kind of thinking, right? So it's like pulling a little piece from something, another little piece from something, another little piece from something, and, and sort of tying it together and assigning it to little pieces of an idea. And that's so, that's so fun for us, you know? I also think in some of those worlds, like especially the art world, fine art world, you know, there's a purity in vision in that stuff where it's, it's not, you know, it's not, it's a commercial endeavor in the sense of art as a, as a, a art and commerce, but it's, it's, it's purely from the mind of somebody um, for the purpose of, of being, you know, expressive. And that sort of space is liberated from some of the restrictions that we may have to, you know, live within. Brand. They're not and, dealing with the brand. They're only dealing with themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then you can take that piece of it and say, okay, well, how does that filter through a brand lens perhaps, but at least we've gotten a pure look at something, you know, uh, in that world. So, and then, you know, I would say nature. I'm sitting in nature right now. Nature's a pretty good one. Yeah. I mean, just seeing uh, behaviors of, of things, living things, and the way it changes, um, seasonality, time of day, movement of sun. I mean, I can't tell you how many things we tie to, to 
natural phenomena. Because, you know, you think you're working in creative technology and experience in that way, and it's all high tech, it's ones and zeros, and this has never existed before the last 30 years. The truth is, the experience idea may manifest itself through creative and technology. But at the end of the day, we have 100,000 years of, of human evolution and genetic response in our cells, and we're going to respond better to things that are attuned to that sort of evolution than the evolution of the last 30 years so you know you'll see a lot of things in our work that are like called the stream or um the wishing well or you know um sunrise or the the um you know the sundial these are things that people understand conceptually having nothing to do with technology or brand. They just know what it's trying to encompass. And then if you, you take that core idea, start to translate it into the cool things we can do, things get really interesting because they connect with you on a human, emotional, genetic level, but then they, they, they become contemporary, you know? So do you, do, you, do you tend to look at this inspiration as, as kind of like a real-time thing or is, are, you, are you storing things in boxes and, and bringing the boxes out? As it, mm-hmm. is it is it is it the Slack channel seems very real time, but are there also sort of containers? Of, I'm sort of talking of a mental concept, containers of things that you can pull from and do pull from. Kind of like you said, there's sort of universals, right? There's some universals there that are evergreen. So you've got evergreen yeah. things that stand the test of time, and then you've got contemporized versions of those that are constant kind of culture, right? Yeah. Some dials being done. 50,000 times through through time, through art movements, yeah. the contemporary version of a sundial, and right. there's a 300-year-old version of a sundial. Yeah. So, yeah, so we did uh, our, our work with Instagram in their San Francisco lobby is called the light forest. What do you think of when I say forest? You think of exploration, maybe being a kid, maybe being the feeling of something larger than yourself. Um, there's a playful aspect. There's an exploratory aspect. Um, and so, you know, I would say a lot of those qualities showed up in the experience. It just happens to be a cool interactive, you know, digitally, technologically driven, you know, interactive space. So, so yeah, I mean, back to your where does it live? You know, Slack has become an invaluable tool. So we have this endless supply of inspiration. And then we have leaders of, on different teams do roundup of that inspiration, like maybe bi-weekly, because it's a stream is a f- constant feed, but it has no um, waiting. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it has no waiting. It's not curated. Rated, so editorializing. Yeah. Right. Cool. So we have someone editorialize it and kind of like bucket it and make and help people make sense of sort of what's going on or trends or just stand out things we need to know about. Um, and then I'd say... <laughs> For sure, every one of our our team people have their own decks that are just stacked with the things that they kind of have that itch to do or take forward, and um, it becomes this like shared, just shared reference. You know, I just had my creative director just like me an hour ago. I was like, "What was that thing?" You know, with the it was like a gray building, and it had this like digital pixels embedded in it and like it could do this that like i can't remember where i saw it and you're like yep okay got it send i'm, I'm like i'll send you a link in a second you know and so you get this shared sort of just like blurry close your eyes kind of thing and you and then you know with the help of your peers you're like you go right at it you know i think the other day i was going what what artist was doing the um what artist was doing the uh the, the sustainability evaluations on on um, all sorts of uh, digital art and artifacts where they could see the server usage and energy impact of having, you know, blah, blah, blah on the blockchain. And I was like, well, who is that? You know, you send it out to the, the world, it comes back in a second. It's like this awesome echo chamber. You know, you just echo it out, comes back as something. And so it's like a hive mind. I love that. I just love having that as a thing, you know. Yeah, that's brilliant. So then my, then my final question um, is, say someone happens to be listening to this, hopefully someone is or will be, 
Um, and they're kind of like, I kind of did architecture. I know a little bit about software. I kind of want to get into this world. What do they read? What, what's the inspiration? Is there a kind of other readers of the things they could be reading about, learning about this world of experience design? Or is it just not something that you can read about? Or what, what, where would you turn them to? Because maybe they want to go, maybe they're thinking, right, this is really freaking cool. I, I really like this idea. I was going to go and work for an architect. But now I, now and, we can, and we can save them. We can save, yeah, we can them. save them. Yeah, from years of. Yeah, I mean, uh, so the good news is, if you'd asked me that question 15 years ago, I have less less to offer because I would say, well, you know, everyone's tearing some new muscle, and it's it's really a little bit of uh, wild west out there. Now I think there's probably a solid 30 firms, you know, in the ecosystem that do great work in different you know, flavors and styles and scales and focus, you know? Um, and I think there's a lot of ways in. And even in, I've been told by some of our younger folks coming out of architecture school that like, this is a real like option people know about now where it's not like, oh, I got to go intern for Raphael Vignoli and, you know, not sleep for three years. And then maybe I'll be able to, you know, design a doorknob. You know, that future isn't, the only future you know it's it's a uh, it's a uh, there are opportunities in this in between space you know a lot of the architects that we have or have had in the past you know came and they they were going into different areas of fabrication or retail or build or um or art and and they just found this kind of really cool hybrid space to exist in so i think if your eyes are open for it and you're like not wanting to just like plow down the down the tracks of like a, a clean architecture profession or even digital uh, development or digital design, you know, profession, or even like a brand and graphic design profession and go make marks and identities. Like all of those are the straight and narrow and a world unto themselves. And I have nothing against them. You know, I'm just saying, if you're, if you're the, if you're the, if you're the person that wants to take an education around a very specific kind of knowledge, but then see what alchemy you can get by rough, rubbing it up against folks who think differently and come from a different background than you, there's a lot more opportunity to do that. So, I mean, Hush is a great place to, to do that and start, but there's others too, you know? Cool. What, um, what do you think, final question, promise it. The office isn't going away, is it? I hope not. Yeah, exactly. So is the question, is it going what away it, what or what, what does that mean? Well, I, I just saw this thing, you know, it's a bit of a literal. Sorry, it just sounded like a bunch of machine guns going on. <laughs> um, I saw this Microsoft uh, China campus design where they got, they almost like post pandemic, like we need to, we need much better spaces to collaborate kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So the workplace is gonna evolve and change. It's not going away. Um, does that present opportunities for you and the way we think about space? Yeah, I do. I mean, we're kind of betting the company on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was a great article um, by Adam Grant in the Times today that was sort of a follow-up to his languishing article. Um, you remember how much traction that one got? So it was a nice kind of counterpoint to his own his own article, which was a little bit about, well, we're, we're, we're engineered to, to feel together and to do things. And, you know, it's been a great little fun time in our, in our, in our houses and apartments and whatever. And we've focused on a lot of new things, but ultimately like we're engineered to feel together. And, and, that, and, and, you know, since we spend a lot of our time at work, you know, in the, in the modern world, that, that, that's part of it is being together for real. So um, I've given up on pontificating about this subject because you could pretty much just like drown in the subject matter. It's just be, it's like clickbait at this point, but early on we, figured out that no matter what businesses want to do in terms of their workplace strategy and you know three days a week two days a week no days a week purely virtual all, 
all in five on five, whatever. That's a real cultural and business problem to solve. I mean, some businesses need to run in a certain way and some cultures need to exist in a certain way. But at the end of the day, the one thing the workplace can always do better than the Zoom place is is inspire and unite people and get them to work together and interact in, in interesting ways. Not better or worse than other ways of interacting, but just unique and different because of the scale of it. And it would be like saying, um, uh, I'm not religious, so I can use this as an example. It'd be like, you know, I, I'm religious, but I've never shared in participating in that religion with anyone else. It would seem strange. I think, you know, the church or the mosque or the temple are the places where you kind of see the shared ideology and behavior and community of what you believe and practice. That doesn't mean you can't go home and also feel powerful, but at some time you come together to feel it together. So if the workplace is the modern day religion, and we could have a whole other podcast on that, um, it, it's responsible for then creating that feeling and under, shared understanding and alignment. And ironically, or not ironically, but coincidentally, this goes back to what we talked about 40 minutes ago, that's our business to design that that space that pulls people together and inspires them and so we kind of figured like the workplace may go through incredible change but what might shake out and be left at the end is what we make and and that's hopefully why people come back to see and participate in the things that we make yeah because it's it's, it's very it's, it's almost impossible to build a to have a virtual culture, isn't it? I, I, don't, I don't know if that's such a thing, you know. I mean, maybe if you're like 37 Signals uh, or, 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 or WordPress and you started virtually and you designed every aspect of your culture to be virtual, then no one knows anything else. So the culture is what right. it is. Yeah. But, but I agree with you. I mean, as a business owner, trying to keep a culture together, it's hard, super hard. Very cool. Thank you very much for your for your time. This has been a great conversation. This is awesome. Let's do it again and talk about running and other things and soccer and or This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.